I would invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3, and in honor of God's word, we're going to read this text. I invite you to stand. Uh, We're jumping in at verse 22. It says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we pray that you would add insight and understanding to our reading of your word, that you would go beyond what any human teacher or preacher can do, that you would go beyond what I'm capable of and that you would speak to every heart and every life and every circumstance, young and old, black and white, no matter who we are, God, that we would hear your voice and it would move us. We recognize that your word brings something fresh to us every time we come to it. And so we pray for you to speak. And then we also pray for you to empower us to have the courage to be obedient to what you say to us in the midst of our listening to your voice. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. So I'm excited because we're beginning a new series today. It's just a four-week series, and it's called Who We Are. And in essence, it gives us the opportunity to talk about what it is we're doing here. Like, what is this church about, and why have we gathered? And to talk about some of our philosophy and approach, to talk about why we do the things we do and how we do them. And to be honest with you, uh, initially, I was planning to just do a a message today about our mission statement. I was kind of do mission statement today and values next week and vision down the road. But I was encouraged by our senior leadership team to maybe change my plan, right? Our mission statement is empowered by the Holy Spirit, Fullerton Free as a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory of God. Many of you have probably heard that before. But the encouragement from the senior leadership team was to maybe teach something different. Uh, A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to to teach at our EFCA West conference down in Vista. Uh, EFCA, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is is the association that our church is in. And I was invited to teach a message down there to a group of pastors and leaders. And I taught this message out of John chapter 3 a couple of months ago. and, And the staff really felt like, before we talk about mission statement or before we talk about values or vision, it might be helpful for all of you to kind of hear this message because it, it's, sort of, uh, it's sort of my anchor in life and in ministry. The speech that John the Baptist gives, and I, I know John the Baptist gives like he gets a bad rap for being kind of crazy and eating bugs and wearing weird stuff. But I will tell you that in John chapter 3 verses 22 and following, uh, in my opinion, it's, my, it's without question my favorite speech in the whole Bible. Not only is it my favorite speech, but it is kind of the fire in me that drives the way I work at a church. It drives the way I interact with my neighbors. It drives the kind of husband I am and the kind of father I am. And pretty much everything we're doing uh, comes back to this, this approach for me and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so in some ways, I, I feel reluctant to talk about this because it's so personal to me. I also feel a little bit reluctant to talk about it because I preached a very similar message in July of 2016 in this church before I was on staff uh, because this thing's been in my guts for a long time. 
But there was an encouragement for me to start here as we begin to talk about who we are as a family and as a church, because so much of what we are doing on a regular basis kind of comes back to this approach to following Jesus. So let me set the stage for you here in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist has been baptizing people at Anon near Salim, right? Because the waters are plentiful. And he's had a robust ministry there. There have been lines of people coming to John the Baptist to be baptized with a baptism of repentance and uh, acknowledgement and anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And he's had a great ministry out in the wilderness until it tells us in John three twenty two that Jesus and his disciples move into the same region and start baptizing people, right? And when that happens... John the Baptist's disciples get kind of agitated, right? They feel a little bit of jealousy. They feel a little bit of uh, frustration because all of their customers, their client base in their perception has crossed the river and is now over with Jesus' disciples. It's interesting to me the places where competition arises. Unlikely places where competition arises. You know what I mean? I, uh, I worked at Hume Lake, which is a Christian camp. I worked there for a long time. And we do a thing at the end of the week at Hume where we do a thing called Victory Circle. And at Victory Circle, you gather up all the kids, high school students, junior high, whatever, that have been at camp for the week. You light a big bonfire and you encourage the kids to sort of talk about what God has done in their life during the week. And almost without fail, there's, there's a funny pattern that happens. Uh, this deal where, you know, you'll have somebody stand up and they'll be like, I just want to thank God because, you know, I've had a really hard week. But God really met me here at camp and I just want to thank him, you know, and people will clap and it's kind of, you know, everybody sort of affirms the kid and then, and then he sits down and then the next kid stands up and you can sort of watch. There's this little escalation. The next kid stands up and he goes, Hey, I just want to thank God because I've had a really hard month and, uh, but you know what? God's been with me in it and I just want to shout out to the Lord, you know, and people are like, Oh, that's really, wow. A month. This guy only had a week. This guy had a month. Well, the next kid stands up and he's like, I just got to say the last five years have been real tough, you know? And you're like, oh, wow, it's like getting, and then, the, you know, it, it gets worse and worse. Somebody will stand up and be like, well, I just want to say, like, my parents run a Mexican drug cartel, and that's been difficult for me. And you're like, that can't be true, right? But the next kid's like, my family was murdered by robots, and it just gets really out of hand really quick, right? It's interesting that we feel this need to one-up each other's stories, even in testifying about our difficulties or the problems or whatever. I want you to see that what John the Baptist's disciples here are feeling is a thing that's very common to all men and women. Sooner or later, your life will be eclipsed by someone else. Sooner or later, your ministry will be eclipsed by someone else. Sooner or later, all of the things that you've accomplished will sort of be overshadowed. And maybe you're already feeling that. Maybe you already feel like you've lost your identity and you're just, now all you are is, you know, Jack, Hank, Lily, and Will's dad instead of being your own person. Or maybe, maybe the younger person has, you know, that whippersnapper's coming to your office and he's getting all the good accounts or whatever, right? For all of us, there's this moment of fear and anxiety, this competition that feels like what I have is being taken from me. And John the Baptist's disciples are frustrated. They come to John the Baptist in John 3, and they say to him in verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, first of all, we know it's not true that all are going to him, because it tells us at the beginning of the text that John the Baptist was also baptizing. So they're both baptizing, it's just that their ministry has changed, right? They maybe had long lines of people there to be dunked, and now they've got fewer people because people have moved across the way. And the sentiment of John the Baptist's disciples is, hey, we've got to do something about this, right? That guy you told us about with the white robe and the blue sash, he's over there, and he has the goal to be baptizing people. 
He doesn't even have Baptist in his name, right? It's just Jesus. But you're John the Baptist. What's he think he's doing, right? Like maybe we should print up some coupons for like two for one dunking all through the month of September, you know, on this side of the river to get, get people back over here to our ministry. What happened to our crowds? What happened to our people? And you guys, without blinking, and it doesn't tell us how long this takes, but it feels to me like there is a a message that comes out of John the Baptist that is instantaneous. It's a thing he's already thought about. I believe this is a philosophy of ministry that already sat in the heart and in the guts of John the Baptist, so he didn't have to think about what to say. It just comes out of him in this moment, and it is incredible. And I want us to see it because I think it's, it's the same heart and approach that should define our followership of Jesus in 2022. There are four key things I want you to see in his response. It says this in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. They're saying, hey, this guy's stealing all our people. And he goes, ah, 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 ah. He says, nobody gets anything except that which they receive from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing. I I love this first sentence because what it shows and and what it puts on display is a sense of dependence in the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, I I think his statement here is like a two-sided coin. I think that first of all, what he's saying is the ministry we've had, the ministry we will have, whether people are on our side of the river, on that side of the river, whatever it is we're doing, whatever it is we've been called to, all of it comes from God. And apart from God, we wouldn't have anything. So what we've had has been great and what we will have has been great, but all of that is God's business and not ours. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians, which we'll study in a few months, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says something similar. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, what then is Apollos or what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says there, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What's Paul saying? Nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. The first side of the coin is John recognizing, hey, we're dependent upon God. We've always been dependent upon God. And the ministry we had or the ministry we have or the ministry we will have is his to determine and not ours. We're dependent upon him. I love that dependence. The other side of the coin in this, the other side of the coin is also a recognition that John the Baptist only brings so much, right? At the end of the day, all John the Baptist can do when the people come to him is he can dunk them in the water. He can call them to repent of their sins and anticipate the Messiah, Jesus, on the other hand, who's on the other side of the river, is that Messiah. Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings redemption. Jesus can restore their identity. He can restore what is broken and gone. Everything that all of John the Baptist's customers and John the Baptist himself need can only be provided by Jesus and not by John the Baptist. So the other side of what he's saying here when he says nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven is it's actually better for our people to go over there to him. He gives them something we can't give them. There is a dependence that is vital in the life of a follower of Jesus. There's a dependence in this church with us going, hey, you know what? We are absolutely, it's why in our mission statement, it begins by saying, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Fullerton Free is X, Y, and Z, right? We begin by recognizing nothing happens apart from the movement of God. The Spirit of God is where the power is. John the Baptist says all of this is from God, and actually it's better for them to go over there. I remember... um, one time I was teaching at a junior high camp up in Running Springs, 
And there was this cute little, she had to be like fifth grade, sixth grade. I don't know, she was tiny. But she comes up to me after one of my messages and she goes, Pastor McWaters, she goes, I just want to tell you that you were anointed to preach the word of God. You know, and I'm like, oh, wow. You know, like, I don't even know. Like, I'm not totally sure what you say when someone says that to you. But I was like, oh, thank you. You know, and she goes, no, you don't understand. Like, you are anointed to preach the word of God. And I was like, I, yeah, okay. I mean, I, yeah, I feel like he's given me a, teaching gift. So I I appreciate that so much. And she goes, you don't get it. She goes, every time you read God's word, your face takes on a heavenly glow. (laughs) I was like, wow. Like nobody's ever said that. I thought maybe it's just like the bald thing or something, you know, it's like a reflection off my dome. And then it dawned on me a couple of months before that I had stopped using a paper Bible and I had started using this iPad mini. And, uh, so I reached over to the podium and I grabbed it and I, and I said, does it, uh, does it look like this? And when I turn it on, of course, the screen lights up and it reflects on my glasses. And she goes, never mind. And she left. <laughs> right? I'm not confused about where the power comes, right? I'm not confused about who I am. I'm not confused about the fact, like John the Baptist, that everything that happens is from God, right? It's not me. I can't save people. I can't do it. I'm fallible. My interpretations are broken. I'm a busted guy just like everybody else. So we're not drawing people to ourselves. We're not elevating the human servants of God. We're doing everything we can to push them to Jesus because that's where life comes. Even at the end of this section in John 3, 36, it says, those who know him have life. That's our bottom line. Jesus is at the center, right? Jesus is at the center. John the Baptist recognizes his own dependence upon God. Secondly, back to John chapter 3, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. From the very beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, he has had one preoccupation, and that is pointing away from himself to Jesus. It tells us in John chapter 1 verse 20, Speaking of John the Baptist, it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist was a person who was deflective. He was dependent upon God and he was deflective. In fact, if you look at classic paintings, portrayals of John the Baptist in classic artwork, uh, altar screens and and the like, look at pictures of John the Baptist. You can Google this this afternoon if you want. Old images, representations of John the Baptist in almost all of them, one of his hands will be pointing. And that's because the church has always recognized that that's a guy who was preoccupied with pushing people away from himself. That's who we want to be. There's a reason why when you go to our church website, there's not a page about me. There's a reason why I get up here on Sundays and I, and I don't make a big deal about myself. Why I say I'm one of the shepherds on staff. That's not an accident. That's not unintentional. It's, it's an intentional focus to try and deflect away from our staff and deflect away from our programs, deflect away from all the things we do and deflect to the one in which whom life is found to focus at Jesus. This church does have a senior pastor, by the way, and it isn't me. It's the Lord Jesus and all of the rest of us, including all of you who are family around here, we all work for him. We're dependent. No one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. You yourself testify that I told you I'm not the Christ, John says. I'm just the one who comes before him. We saw something similar not too long ago when we were looking at the life of Joseph, right? In the life of Joseph, remember when he'd been put into prison, 
And uh, through the thing with the baker and the butler, Pharaoh finds out that Joseph can interpret dreams. He pulls Joseph out. He brings Joseph before him and he says, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? It's not unlike what happens with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And Joseph, I mean, he can, he can do this, right? By the power of God, Joseph knows what the dream is. And yet Joseph's response to the Pharaoh in Genesis, you remember it? Nobody can do it. There is no man who can do this thing. But there is a God who will reveal it to Pharaoh. Daniel says almost the same thing to Nebuchadnezzar. There is no wise man or enchanter. That's in Daniel 2, by the way. There's no wise man or enchanter or magician who can tell the king the thing that he wants to know. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, Daniel says. Joseph is deflective. Daniel is deflective. Peter is deflective. Paul is deflective, right? So shall we. So shall we be. Pointing away from ourselves. Let us be a family and a community who point away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from him. He says, I told you, I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one who comes before him. He's dependent. He's deflective. Let's keep reading here. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's really interesting what John the Baptist does is he gives us a a sermon illustration, right? That's all that is. He paints a picture, which is what a sermon illustration is. He paints a picture of a wedding. He wants us to envision this. And he says, when you're looking at me or you're, you're feeling jealous for the customers we used to have, he goes, I want you to remember, I'm not the bridegroom. You got the wrong picture if you think John the Baptist is the center of the thing. I'm not the center of the thing. I'm the one who stands to the side of the one who is the center, right? He says, picture a wedding. You want to know who John the Baptist is? He says, John the Baptist is the best man. I'm the guy who gets dressed up and stands there, but nobody's paying attention to, right? I don't know if you've ever been invited to be a best man or a matron of honor, a maid of honor. That's a position of honor, right? It's an honor to be invited by family or friends to stand with them at their wedding. But can you imagine for a second if you got invited to be a maid of honor or a, or a best man or whatever, and you mistakenly thought that that day, that wedding day was going to be all about you? What if you thought that was going to be all about, I mean, for after all, you're in a tuxedo, you got a boutonniere or whatever. What, what if you thought that was going to be about you? Can you imagine how frustrated you would be for the whole ceremony, right? Because you walk down in procession and you stand in the front. And then once you get there, there's these like 200 people and none of them care that you're alive. They're not looking at you. The pastor's not asking you any questions, right? Your buddy gets all the attention. He actually gets to kiss somebody. You don't get to kiss nobody, right? And if you misunderstand your proper position, the temptation will be to try and make it about yourself. And so maybe you, maybe you do some dancing. Maybe you start, you know, pointing at people in the crowd. Maybe you lean in for a kiss of your own. I don't know what you do, right? If you misunderstand your position, you'll be ticked all the time. Can I tell you, there are a lot of Christians in this world who misunderstand that they're not the center of the story. And because they misunderstand that they're not the center of the story, they're angry all the time, right? They're frustrated all the time and they're doing everything they can to try and make it about them. And it simply isn't. You see, the thing about John the Baptist is not only is he dependent and deflective, but he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. He's dedicated to the joy of someone else. He says, this joy of mine is now complete because I get to stand to the side and watch people meet Jesus. This is why I'm alive. I'm full of joy because it's not about me. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Dedicated to the joy of someone else. 
And this is a hard one for us as Americans, right? Again, because we've been told from the time we were little that everything is about our own pleasure and everything is about our own power, our own influence. It's all about building our own kingdoms. And so when I get up in front of you and say, hey, at the core of who we are as a church, at the core of who we want to be, at the core of our programs, the the staff I hire, the, the things we spend money on, the places we go, at the core of that is this dedication to the joy of other people. It might be hard for you, right? Because you've been trained all along to be dedicated to your own joy, to be dedicated to your own preferences and your own pleasures. In all honesty, sooner or later, if you're dedicated to your own joy, you'll leave this church and you'll go to one where you like the music better or you like the staff better or you like the air conditioning works a little better or whatever. I'm just thinking of that right now. I don't know, right? If you're driven by a dedication to your own joy, it's only a matter of time before you'll go to a different place that will satisfy your needs for that season. And then when those needs aren't met, you'll just go to another place and another place. How many do we know who've moved from place to place to place? Why does that happen? Because they're not dedicated to the joy of someone else. They're dedicated to their own satisfaction. And if you're dedicated to your own satisfaction, you will always be dissatisfied. So how do, we, how do we be a church that's focused on the good of someone else? It's hard because we're so used to a payoff, right? We're so used to getting something out of our sacrifice and getting something out of our labor, right? We're, we're, we will do hard things, all of us. We do hard things on a regular basis, right? But we do it for what we get out of it. The problem with being dedicated to the joy of someone else is that we don't get the payoff for that. If we're living the life of a dependent, deflective follower of Jesus, the payoff is not for us. It's for the glory of God and the good of the person on the other side of the river, and so you'll lose your motivation because the payoff's not for you. It doesn't necessarily feel good to be united in sacrifice. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily make you feel like you're being, you know, like, like you're having your back scratched the way you want. I will tell you there's another fuel. Other than payoff, there's, there's another fuel source. And I'll, I'll illustrate with a story. When, um, when my son Hank was being potty trained, like, like probably three years old, uh, he was at that stage where, like, if he said he needed to go to the bathroom, he didn't mean, like, oh, in the next half an hour, it would be nice to find a toilet, right? If he said, I need to go to the bathroom, you, there's, like, 40 seconds on the clock. You know what I'm talking about? It was, like, a game show, and you better find a bathroom quick. So we're in the Fresno airport, of all places, and uh, we're getting ready to fly to Nevada, see some family. And my son, Hank, goes, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. I don't even remember what I was doing. I, I, if I was reading a magazine, I probably threw it, right? I jump up. I scoop up that kid. And I'm running through the Fresno airport to try and get to the bathrooms in time. And uh, people are looking at us kind of weird, you know. Like, it's a kind of a spectacle. Like, security guard unsnaps his gun. And to be fair, like, Hank's a chemical weapon at that point. So I get it, right? So I'm running. I'm running through the airport. I get into the bathroom. I find the stalls. I uh, fling open the door. I set down my kid. I yank on his pants. And the, uh, I know it's church, so I don't want to get too graphic. But my, the timer ran out. How about that, right? <laughs> so you guys, what we got, <clears throat> what we got is a, a mess, right? We got a mess on Hank and on his clothes and shoes. We got a mess on me, my shoes, the bottom of my pants, a mess on the bathroom. Like there's a, it's a mess. And there's a moment, if I'm being honest, there's a moment there as I'm, uh, looking at this that I think to myself, I'm just going to put this kid in the trash. Um, cause there's like a big, there's like a big dumpster thing there, you know? And I thought I like, I'm, I'm young. I can have more kids and I'll just, uh, this will be like a fixer upper kid for another family. Like I'll leave him here and somebody will come in and be like, Oh, somebody threw away a perfectly good kid. We just have to hose him off, you know? And so I'm thinking about how I get out of there. Right. And, uh, I look down at my boy and he starts, he looks up at me and he just starts to sob. He's embarrassed and ashamed. And so I, I start to clean him up. 
And the next memory I have in this story is of me in the Fresno airport bathroom cleaning poop out of tiny underpants, right, in the sink. And I, I catch my own reflection and I think, when did this become my life? You know, like, uh, like when did I become the guy who does this thing? You know, but I, I, I got it all done and we made our flight. Here's the point. Like, there isn't a day in the future where Hank's going to call me up and be like, Dad, do you remember that day in the Fresno airport? It was so inspirational. I've decided to become a missionary, you know, like. That's not coming back around. In fact, Hank doesn't even really remember that. There were no other parents in the room at the time, you know, like, you, sir, are an excellent father. We're calling Oprah Winfrey. Like, he didn't thank me. Nobody else noticed it. Like, there was no, there was no payoff for me. It was just all gross. So why did I do that hard thing? Why did I do that hard thing? There was no payoff for me. Why did I do that hard thing? I did it because of how deeply I loved that little boy. And we will do things from love when there is no other fuel, when there is no payoff. It's why Jesus says the most important things are love God and love others. You get those two right. The rest of it all comes together because the fuel of the Christian life is not your own satisfaction or your own payoff. The fuel is the glory of God and the good of others. And love will do the trick. John the Baptist says, I'm not the bridegroom. (laughs) He says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the dude who gets stoked to stand over here and watch people meet Jesus. That's what the church is. That's who we are, who we have to be. The final thing in this text, he's, he's dependent, he's deflective, he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. And then look at this. This is probably the most famous part of the whole speech. He says, the one in verse nine, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you've heard any of that speech by John the Baptist, it's probably that sentence. He must increase, I must decrease. You've probably seen it like sewn on a doily or painted on shiplap at Hobby Lobby or whatever. Um, I want to be really clear that, that out of context, that sentence can, can mean all kinds of things it doesn't mean. What John the Baptist is not saying is, I'm working hard to make Jesus glorious. And if I don't do my part, who knows what will happen to him? I, I got to work hard to like push myself down so that he seems better, right? That's not what John the Baptist is saying. But many times when we think of a text like that, we think of it in those terms like, I got I to gotta decrease. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunker down here so Jesus seems cool. That's not what John the Baptist is saying. What John the Baptist is recognizing is the nature and trajectory of human history, I said at the very beginning, sooner or later, all of us will have our lives and our jobs eclipsed by someone else. The trajectory of the universe, according to Philippians chapter 2, is that there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're fighting against that ultimate end because you'd kind of like them to kneel down and confess that you are something awesome, you'll always be frustrated. If you want this life to be about you, you will always be frustrated. But if you can get in the flow of that trajectory, if you can say, you know what? Jesus is glorious and increasingly the world will realize that. And I can either join that story or I can be trying to promote my own thing. But if you try and promote your own thing, you'll be discouraged all the time. We are decreasing And he is increasing, not because we did something right or wrong, but because that is the story God is telling. We talked about that in the last four weeks. King Jesus and his kingdom story is at the heart of all of this. So the last thing I want you to see is that John 
is decreasing. Now, I want, to be, I want to be careful when I say this because it can, the pendulum can swing too far into self-deprecation, right? So if I say, like, he is glorious and you are largely irrelevant and you'll become more largely irrelevant as your life goes on, there is a sense in which you can be like, yeah, I'm meaningless and I'm worthless and I'm not good for nothing, right? That, that's the wrong response. We've all met Christians like that where you go like, hey, how are you? And they're like, not very good. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry I asked, you know, like, ugh. I'm not talking about beating ourselves up or being falsely humble. I'm talking about a recognition that Jesus is glorious and we're invited in. I want to remind you of a story, one of my favorites in uh, John 21. And we looked at this a few years ago. But in John 21, there's this, uh, it's the story where after the resurrection, Jesus goes back to Galilee and his disciples are fishing and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus fills their nets with fish and then they bring their boat in. I want to remind us of that because there's good perspective here on understanding the fact that you are made in the image of God. You aren't valueless. You're not worthless. Like that, that, the fact that you're decreasing doesn't mean that you're not made in the image of God and loved by God and called by God to be included in the story. In John chapter 21, as the guys row in their boats, let's look at it just so it's a reminder to you. John 21 verse 9. The disciples row in with their net full of fish. And it says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now in the course of John 21, you might be tempted to skip over that story because it just, it doesn't necessarily seem significant. But let's slow down and look what's happening here. They row in their boat and Jesus is cooking breakfast on the shore. Like as a side note, when Jesus cooks breakfast... How good is that breakfast, right? Like that's got to be, I don't want to have fish for breakfast myself, but if Jesus cooked it, I think I would taste it at least, right? Jesus is cooking breakfast on the beach when these guys row in and he's got some fish laid out on the fire. I don't know where he got them or how he caught them. I sort of imagine that because he's Jesus, he took the skillet down to the water's edge and said, hey fish, I'm Jesus. And they're like, okay. And they jumped into the pan. I don't know, right? So he's cooking some fish. And then he says to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught and add them to the fire. Why does he do that? Why does he do it? Jesus has the ability in and of himself to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. He's got fish that he's cooking on the beach. He doesn't need their resources. He doesn't need their help. If he wanted to cook more fish, he could have procured more fish. He is capable of multiplying fish. We know that. So why does he ask them to bring some of theirs? He doesn't need them. He invites them to add their fish to the fire, not because he needs their help, but because he wants them to enjoy the experience of participating in what he's already cooking. He's already got a thing going. At the corner of Baston, Cherry, and Brea, in the city of Fullerton, in the country of America, in the year 2022, God already has a thing cooking. And while he is increasing and we are decreasing, there is no reason to beat yourself over the head and to feel like you're worthless because the God of the universe has said to you, bring some of your fish and add them to my fire. He includes us not because he needs us. It's also worth noting that every fish they bring out of that net, they only have in the net because he first filled up the net. 
right? So the fish he invites them to include, he gave them first. They had empty nets until he came. Every one of us in this room have different fish in our nets. Some of you are great with money, and some of you are incredible teachers and architects. Some of you are just getting started with your career. Some of you, your families are just getting started. Some of you are looking for a family. Like, we're all in different places. We all have different gifts. Some of you are musically talented. Some of you are artistically talented. Some of you are great with math and whatever. God has put different fish in all of our nets, and he did that because he loved us and he wants us to experience the joy of participating in what he's already cooking. So you're not insignificant. You're not worthless. You're not throwing away. He is the most important and he invites you to bring what he put in your net, whatever that is. That might only be five bucks. It might just be that you're good at stacking chairs. It might be that you're good at sitting with kiddos. I I, I don't know what's in your net because God doesn't put the same thing in all of our nets. But what he's put in your net He looks at you lovingly and says, hey, I got a thing cooking over here. You want to be a part of this? He invites us to participate, not because he needs us, but because he wants us to know the joy of being involved in what he's already doing. John the Baptist is dependent upon God for everything he is and everything he has. He's deflective. He's always lifting people's eyes to the Lord Jesus and pointing away from himself. He's dedicated to the joy of someone else. And the only way to do that is to be fueled by love for other people. And he's decreasing and he knows it and he's fine with it. This approach, which comes out of him almost instantaneously, can change our lives. All of our disappointment and envy and anger at being set aside, all of our frustration at our station, our attempts to exalt ourselves and our preferences, they're all rooted in a a failure to embrace dependence and deflection and dedication to the joy of other people and a decreasing significance. But when we talk about who we are as a church, it is vital for you to understand these principles, dependence and deflection and dedicated to the joy of someone else and decreasing. Because when you look at our mission statement, it comes out of this. When you look at our values, it comes out of this, right? At the heart of it, it's pointing people to the Lord Jesus because nobody receives anything except that which they get from him. When you look at the people that we've hired on our staff, when you look at the programs that we're running, when you look at the way we do our worship services, all of it is shaped around the idea of trying to lift people's eyes And point them to Christ. And if this is your church. If this is your family. And even those of you who are guests. I'm kind of hoping it will be your your family in the future. If this is your place. this This is who we are. Who we are are people who are trying to lift our neighbor's eyes. And send them across the river to Jesus. Because everything they need they can get from him. And not from us. Would you pray with me? God I I want this so bad. I want. uh, I, I feel like I got this fire in my chest. And I want to be able to light torches with it and pass them out. And there are so many in this room who are already burning hotter than I am in this regard. Will you unite us around the idea of dependence and deflection and dedication to your glory and the good of others? Will you unite us around the understanding that we are decreasing in significance and yet you've invited us to bring the fish you gave us and add them to your fire. What a gift it is to be your children and to be your church in this place, in this time, with these people together. Will you use us for your glory and the good of our neighbors? And will you allow us to be motivated and fueled by love, which is the only fuel source source that will sustain discipleship where the payoff is not for us? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.